Welcome to Learn Buddhism. I'm Alan Pido. Buddhism has caught the imagination of Westerners and people from around the world. And with that comes a lot of misconceptions about Buddhism. In this episode, I'd like to talk about five such misconceptions about Buddhism so that you can better understand as you progress in learning about this religion. Number one, Buddhism is all about suffering. And this really stems to a word and term we use in Buddhism called dukkha. And dukkha is commonly or was sloppily translated in the past as suffering. But because of that translation, a lot of people latched on to that particular word. Because the Buddha did say, all I teach is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. But if we translate dukkha into suffering, it comes to all I teach is suffering and the cessation of suffering. And we are very connected and can readily understand that word suffering. So it makes sense to us. And we go, yeah, Buddhism is all about suffering. But if we really look at that word dukkha, it doesn't have a great English translation. It means everything from unsatisfactoriness, distress, disease, just something not quite right in our life. So it doesn't mean necessarily suffering like we may understand it. It's talking about a wide range of levels. But this is very similar to a physician telling you that you are sick or you have an illness. That's fine. Basically what the Buddha is doing here, if we can relate him to a physician, he's telling us about the illness or sickness that we have, and he's saying it's dukkha. And so that's not where the story ends. He's just making you aware of something that you're not aware of. It, we have to get, dig deeper into things. For example, why am I sick? Why, why am I sick with this dukkha? Am I going to be okay? What's the prognosis? And how do I get there? And this is all covered in the Buddha's Four Noble Truths as he explained all this. But we have to dig a little bit deeper. What we're really talking about in Buddhism and what it's all really about is something called dependent origination. When the Buddha was originally Siddhartha Gautama before he became the Buddha and he was meditating under the tree of enlightenment or the Bodhi tree, what he became awakened to, what he realized and had deep insight about was dependent origination. This is commonly referred to as cause and effect. Generally, all phenomena, such as you and me, arise due to causes and conditions and will cease in its current form as causes and conditions. We can sort of think of dependent origination as a glue that kind of binds and keeps together and has developed all the other components of Buddhism and the Buddha's teachings. Because what it's getting to the heart of is that reason we have dukkha, right? Suffering. And as the Buddha explained it, dependent origination is a big part of this. We arise in this current form due to causes and conditions, dependent origination. But it's a temporary, impermanent, and ever-changing grouping, and it's interdependent on other things. So there's these five aggregates, five groupings of things that make us us, where it's basically all working together so seamlessly, and we call that nama rupa, or name and form. It works so seamlessly with our body and senses and our consciousness and everything else that it feels like a self, a me, an I, we, we feel 
to various degrees that there's something inside us that is unchanging, that is permanent. And sometimes that's maybe called a soul, but you could be a wide variety of other explanations. But we feel there's something inside us that's permanent and unchanging. Because of that, we want to cling and crave to things that reinforce that belief and protect that belief because that belief is assailed on different occasions when we're confronted with the true nature of impermanence and dependent origination. We just don't like that, and neither does this idea of self that's been this illusion. And because of this clinging and craving, we are on fire or poisoned by something called the three fires or three poisons. It's greed, anger, and delusion. So delusion or ignorance of the truth of dependent origination and everything else makes us greedy, cling, crave to things. And when that doesn't work really well, anger and hatred fall right after it. So it's this like endless cycle. And as a result of like that greed and anger and also that delusion, we're creating karmic actions. So karma is intentional volitional actions. And we commonly call that in Buddhism karma with outflows. So outflows are basically our actions that bind us, almost like prisoners, to what the Buddha called a cycle of rebirth. It's this constant struggle, this constant imprisonment, if you will, through birth and death, birth and death, existence and existence and existence. But there's nothing that's a solid or ever unchanging thing that continues through all these existences, which happens moment to moment, but also after death as well. But we believe there is. And so that's where this karma is keeping us bound because the karma is what continues on. The future potential of it and past impressions of it, that continues on, which can be a very very difficult thing to understand, especially for beginners, like what is just actions? Just actions continue on? Actions make me arise and phenomena arise? Yeah, but it, it takes a, a long time sometimes to really understand that. But as we get into that, this, this karma is arising and it creates us and it creates these other phenomena. This is what's going on. It's almost like seeds and they're being watered or given nutrients to bloom when they're ready. So if you're always having unwholesome actions, you are watering these seeds that you may have planted before or from prior existences to bloom. We don't want that in Buddhism. So our true natural state is nirvana, as the Buddha said, which does not have greed, anger, or delusion, those three fires. That's what we want to get to. So dukkha may be what the Buddha described as kind of like our illness or our condition, but it wasn't all he really talked about, and it's not all what Buddhism is about. It's about dependent origination, because when he understood that, he understood the connections between everything else. He understood why dukkha exists, how it arises, the causes and conditions of that, of dukkha, and also how to live in our true natural state of nirvana. So it may get the imagination of a lot of people, this suffering or dukkha, however you want to translate it. But it's really all about, this story is all about dependent origination, which is not as catchy as saying suffering or all I teach is suffering, right? But it's really at the heart of the matter. And when you start to learn about that particular teaching in Buddhism, it's a very transformative. 
Number two, Buddhist practice is only meditation. And this is very much on a lot of Westerners and beginners' minds because you are assailed with nothing but these wonderful pictures of Buddhist monastics meditating or other people meditating. You hear about people meditating. So it's very easy to believe that all that happens in Buddhism is pretty much meditation. But we have something in Buddhism called the threefold training. This is wisdom, morality, and discipline. And it's part of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is our path towards blowing out the three fires of greed, anger, and delusion, ending dukkha in our lives so we can reside in our natural state of nirvana. And so meditation is part of that discipline category of the threefold path and thus also the threefold training. But it's not the only thing. There's all these different components of a complete or whole Buddhist practice. Meditation just gets a very good visual in our popular culture and online. We love to see pictures of that, but there's much more to it. In fact, a lot of laypersons, in fact, most laypersons don't do the sitting meditation that you may see in all these pictures. And even historically, a lot of monastics didn't do the sitting meditation that you see in all those pictures. It was sometimes reserved for perhaps uh, advanced monastics or in certain locations, for example. And for laypersons, as I mentioned, it used to be a very rare thing for them to even engage in sitting meditation because depending on where they lived and their work and everything, you didn't really have time to devote to sitting meditation, except for maybe special occasions or something like that where you may want to get a taste of the monastic life. So sitting meditation really got a modern boost thanks to Burma, who brought about a whole new emphasis on sitting meditation. It caught on with the laypersons who are now increasingly having more time to actually do sitting meditation and then caught the world by storm. Now, sitting meditation is wonderful. It is definitely historical and we have lots of great teachings from the Buddha and others about it, but it's not the only thing. Other things that laypersons do, a lot of is going to be chanting. And chanting is a form of meditative concentration. Also, maybe contemplating the values or the imagery of a Buddha, which is wholesome. That's also meditative concentration. So there's numerous different ways that meditative concentration, which is part of the discipline category of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, is accomplished. Sitting meditation is also one of those that you can do. There's also walking meditation and a variety of other things. So really, it's about that concentration portion of it is, is really important. So sitting meditation, you are not required to do sitting meditation, but depending on your practice, this might be something that you are actually doing. Ultimately, what we're trying to do with meditative concentration is to end delusion. We're trying to become awakened by gaining insight into the true nature of things, just like the Buddha did, so that we can end the three fires of delusion, greed, and anger. This is very foundational, but there's just different ways you can do it. Number three, Buddhism is only for monks and nuns or monastics. And this is very evident also by imagery you might be seeing. You see plenty of pictures of monastics and their robes and their shaved heads, and it becomes very much 
all we think about with Buddhism. In fact, laypersons probably don't get much attention because the imagery of monastics is so wonderful and unique. We latch onto that more than we would seeing a layperson do something, for example. But obviously, monastics are not the majority of the people inside Buddhism. It's actually the laypersons. So there's over half a billion Buddhists around the world, and majority of those are laypersons. Laypersons are foundational inside Buddhism, of course, because they are supporting the monastics as well. So monastics would not exist without the support of laypersons. And we were finding most of these laypersons, of course, where predominantly majority Buddhist countries are, but around the world. Monastics, they get a lot of attention just because, as I mentioned, the imagery, but they are also taking that ultimate step in Buddhism. They are essentially going into the homeless life. Right now, laypersons, we are in the householder life, it's called. So they're giving up basically everything to enter the Buddha's path, teachings, everything, so that they can also progress as much as possible, hopefully towards enlightenment. Whereas us as laypersons, as householders, we have lots of other constraints and other things that are not necessarily making it easy for us to become enlightened or awakened. Now, that being said, we do have two major branches of Buddhism, there's Theravada and Mahayana. So in Theravada, it is much more emphasized to go the monastic path, although you obviously have a lot of laypersons in Theravada as well. But you will see where there's sort of a, I would say, temporary ordination that a lot of people do in Theravada, like almost like a rite of passage, if you will. You become a monastic for a short amount of time, but maybe it will for the rest of your life. It just depends, but you are almost going off to college, so to speak. And it's a very rewarding experience, but it's also culturally important as well. Whereas in Mahayana, you don't really see that. Laypersons are not looking to become temporarily ordained. When you become a monastic there, you're becoming a monastic. And of course, both branches and all these different schools have different ways you become ordained and everything related to that. But essentially, they are all following these rules for monastics, these precepts. And it, it, to various degrees, they are different between all different schools and branches. But the good chunk of it, the, the heart of it, is, is still there. In Mahayana, the emphasis is a lot on laypersons as well. We have things such as the Bodhisattva path. There's also Pure Land Buddhism. So there's ways where you can become enlightened without necessarily being in a homeless life as a monastic. So yes, there is more to Buddhism than just being a monastic, although they are very much respected in Buddhism because we have the triple gem in Buddhism. The triple gem is what Buddhists, when you become an official Buddhist, so to speak, you take refuge in the Buddha as our teacher, the Dharma as the teachings or basically the path to, to enlightenment, and also the Sangha, the monastic community, because they are helping us there. And the great imagery of that triple gem is the Buddha sort of like our physician, the Dharma as almost like the medical textbook or the cure, we also have the Sangha, almost like his nurses or physician assistants, to help him with us. And temples 
are like hospitals. So all of this is there to help us get rid of this sickness like we talked about in number one there, dukkha. Number four, Buddhists believe in reincarnation. This is a big one because we have a word in Buddhism called rebirth. And that sounds very similar to reincarnation. And this leads to many questions by Westerners and beginners as, well, what will I be reborn as? And notice that me or I being emphasized there. And as we learned before, the Buddha says, there is nothing permanent, unchanging, or independent about ourselves. There's no permanent essence or I inside us, a self. That doesn't exist. That's the illusion. But because reincarnation is so in our popular culture, we've heard it used with, of course, Hinduism, for example, where almost like a, a self or a soul goes into another existence, another body, and you're benefited from what you do in this life is good. It's going to benefit you in that future life. So that seems very similar. Now, this can get very nuanced. You will have some people argue, well, reincarnation and rebirths are really the same inside Buddhism. But the issue is here is the actual definition of it and like what it means inside Buddhism. So I would argue, yeah, I agree with that. But if you tell any Westerner or any beginner reincarnation, they're going to immediately go to what was I in a past life or what will I become in a future life? They're thinking about something permanent that's continuing on and on and on or even from the past. With rebirth, we're only talking about this stream of consciousness. This is the only thing that's from beginningless time to in the future. We don't know when that's going to end. That's the only thing that continues on. And basically inside this stream of consciousness, we can almost think of it almost like a garden or a field where there are seeds planted inside there. The seeds are going to be karma, karmic actions. And there's also trace impressions of those past seeds as well. So it's very nuanced in that degree, but it's all about karma. It's all about actions. Karma is what keeps us trapped in a cycle rebirth. It is what prompts, generates new phenomena, new existences like you and me to come into being, all stemming back to dependent origination. So reincarnation, if we want to think about it in the popular culture terminology, references you benefiting in the future or not benefiting and what you were in the future or in the past. And there's just many different ways it gets misconstrued as something that Buddhism believes in. We don't believe in that as Buddhists. There is nothing permanent, no permanent essence inside us that continues on. It's our karmic actions. And this can also be a bit depressing to Westerners and beginners because they may go, well, what am I even practicing for then? If I am not going to benefit in a future existence, then what's even the point? And that's actually the point. We believe that we have something permanent inside us to benefit from, even in this, in this current life right now. So as soon as we break down this false belief in a self, an I, that the Buddha says does not exist, which is not saying you don't exist right now. You have a name, obviously, and beliefs and everything else like that. But you are ever-changing. You are impermanent, and you are interdependent upon other things. When you, not intellectually, but fundamentally understand that, you can break down 
that belief, you can stop the three fires of greed, anger, and delusion because they are latching onto that. And you can reside in your natural state of nirvana, just like the Buddha and his line of followers did. And that's our true natural state. When we can get there, then we are able to actually exist as we should. And there's a two parts to this. Nirvana, where we're at right now, is a mental state and condition, but there's also sort of like a final nirvana where you don't continue on in a cycle of rebirth. Because as I mentioned earlier about karma, we do not want to create karma with outflows, which is keeping us in a cycle of rebirth. What we want is karma without outflows. So that final nirvana is possible when you are no longer creating karma with outflows. So enlightened beings like the Buddha, karma without outflows, they are able to, when their current existence right now, this temporary existence ends, they are no longer continuing on into new existences. Because the new existences, Buddhism does not like to be reborn, if you will, if you want to use the reincarnation example, because the Buddha says that's dukkha, that's suffering, this existence, this cycle called samsara, we don't like it. And that's what we want to, to stop. We want to realize nirvana. And then finally, Buddhism is a way of life or a philosophy. And honestly, this one here is mostly emphasized by Westerners. So if you talk to the majority of those half a billion Buddhists around the world, it's a religion. You know, it's just when it came to Western countries, you had a lot of people who wanted to get away from their current religion, and they saw Buddhism as that way. So it got shaped in a way of, well, all this other stuff that we're seeing in Buddhism is cultural. Or, well, maybe the Buddha didn't really say that. And so it became very much like a buffet where people were picking and choosing things out of Buddhism, making it into their own, and saying, you know what? See, Buddhism isn't really a religion. It's just a way of life or a philosophy because it doesn't believe in a creator God. It doesn't have this and that. And if you strip away all this other stuff that's been happening for 2,600 years, you come to the real essence of Buddhism. We have rediscovered the true Buddhism. And that's really doing a disservice, in my opinion, to Buddhism, as is practiced by pretty much everybody. But it becomes very palatable to Westerners and beginners because you might be escaping your current religion, which you don't like. Or maybe you want, you're an atheist and you're like, oh, Buddhism really speaks to me because as soon as I strip away all this, I can practice something that is going to help me and it's not really a religion. Buddhism is a religion. It follows all the major things that you would think inside a religion. For example, the way we define a religion right now is very much based upon the Abrahamic religions, such as Christianity, Islam, etc. It's all based upon that. Just because Buddhism does not have a creator God does not mean it doesn't qualify as a religion. For example, it has a central religious figure, which is the Buddha. It has a salvation message inside there that you can transform dukkha, which we commonly call suffering, and end wrong actions, which leads to this end of rebirth, which we don't want. It even gives us an explanation of existence and life after death. So remember dependent origination, we got samsara, the cycle of birth and death, we got nirvana, this end state we want to get to, we got karma, that actions, we got rebirth, etc. We have all these explanations inside there. 
We also have religious figures, monks and nuns, monastics. We also have temples and organizations based upon that. And there's plenty of rituals as well, which are sometimes chalked up as cultural, but they are skillful means. They are ways to help us understand and practice Buddhism. We have ceremonies. There's a structure for practicing. And you need to have faith, not a blind faith in Buddhism, but a faith in the Buddhist teachings, even when we don't fully understand it all. He's our teacher. I don't maybe get advanced calculus or something like that, but I have faith in that teacher who does understand that, and I need to continue practicing and learning until I can understand it as well. There's, of course, cultural aspects to this, and I kind of mentioned that briefly. They can be very helpful in practicing understanding Buddhism. I would say on stuff like that, let your guard down, go in there without expectations and perceptions. You'll be surprised at some of the cultural practices. Yes, some will have stuff that's very specific that to their particular country, for example, but you're going to find ways to practice Buddhism and understand it that's just going to flash like a light bulb inside you going, wow, I never really understood that. But if you don't practice, if you don't join in, you're not going to experience that. We also have holy pilgrimages to, for example, places where the Buddha was born and died and stuff like that. We have heavenly and supernatural beings and supranormal Buddhas and everything else like that. There's even scripture related to future Buddhas, prophecies. And of course, there's analysis and philosophy that you can find inside Buddhism, just like you can find inside other religions. So religion if we wanted to find this way, is the glue that holds everything together. It's the practices, it's the rituals, it's the beliefs, it's the faith, it's all these things that we need as human beings. If you feel, I don't need any of that, I'm not here to argue either way on that. I'm just saying that Buddhism is absolutely a religion. And if we start putting our definition of a religion based upon how other religions define it, we're stripping away and we're actually saying a lot of other religions besides Buddhism actually aren't religions either. And that's not really fair at all. Now, more fundamentally, there really wasn't really a word or a term for a religion, really, when it comes to Buddhism. As we look in maybe in the ancient past, for example, in, in, in Asia, in India. And so we really have to understand these are really Western or modern notions of what we consider a religion. So does this matter to you or not? I would just say keep an open mind, but also be respectful that this is absolutely religion to over half a billion people. In fact, the majority of Buddhists definitely call it a religion. And so those were just a few of the misconceptions that I routinely hear about Buddhism, but they're by far not them all. Do you have any questions about Buddhism or any possible misconceptions you may have about it? I would love to hear from you either on social media or via my website, alanpito.com. You can send me a message. And I look forward to talking with you in our next episode. Thank you.